Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is Monday morning in California, April the 3rd, 2023. Regular viewers and listeners to Keenon know that I have a particular interest in American medicine. It seems to offer a window into the soul, uh, if there is indeed a soul of America, and perhaps all the problems with that soul. What's it like to be a doctor in America? We've done a, a number of shows about that. One with my friend Robert Pearl, who used to run Kaiser Permanente in California, now professor at Stanford Medical School. Um, he's argued in a very controversial book that, um, that the culture of medicine in America is killing not just patients, but also doctors, the dysfunctionality of the American medical system in his book, Uncaring, is not only bad for all of us as patients, but also as doctors. It's certainly an incredibly tough job, particularly, I think, for women and minorities. We did a show a couple of years ago with a young woman, Dr. Uche Blackstock, an African-American doctor, uh, who talked to me about what it's like as a doctor to be on the front lines of the COVID epidemic. She's certainly a heroic figure. Um, and then we did another one with Alex Jahangir, um, a, a COVID doctor in Tennessee, uh, about how COVID, he, he writes about this hotspot, a doctor's diary from the pandemic, suggesting that the crisis of COVID is very much bound up in the crisis of the American medical system. We even had a young novelist uh, whose day job is as a doctor in New York, Anna DeForest, um, who has a new book out called A History of Present Illness, who came on the show to talk about how the American medical system does a particularly bad job at dealing with life's greatest mystery, death, the very thing that, of course, the medical industry is designed to fight. So we are back on the medical front once again with another doctor who has another book out about what it's like to be a doctor uh, in the United States. And what it's like to be a doctor as a young African-American man. His name is Anthony Chin Kui, and he has a new book out, I Can't Save You. Uh, it's a lovely read, very provocative and very personal, very, um, uh, very much of a memoir. Uh, and he is joining us from Durham in the north of England, the northeast of England. Anthony, congratulations on the book. Uh, I Can't Save You. That's not what anyone wants to hear from a doctor, is it? <laughs> I would assume no. Um, and first of all, thank you so much, Andrew, for, for having me on here. But um, I think that the idea, I can't save you, kind of came to me when I decided what type of book I wanted to write. You, you mentioned so many great uh, physician writers. You know, I've conversed with Dr. Blackstock online. Um, she's wonderful. Um, but we still kind of are taking this uh, something of a top-down look at uh, the way medicine really becomes devastating for the people who are on the front lines, the doctors, the nurses, all the medical professionals. And I wanted, with mine, to really take folks uh, 
deep inside the head of someone who is uh, not just struggling with uh, medicine and the way that the system is built and and the medical uh, you know education system, but the ways in which that system sort of stripped away um, my defenses against any other demons that I may have been uh, trying to fight for my whole life. Anthony, it's such a tough business being a doctor. It requires so many years of study, so much sacrifice financially, personally. Uh, and you went through all that, and yet now uh, you're no longer a doctor. Tell us your story of what happened to Anthony, um, Anthony Chin Kui that resulted in you going from uh, one, of, uh, one of the most um, promising young doctors in America now to a writer. Well, uh, I think, Andrew, that's that's kind of the story of the whole book. Uh, well, don't give I, it all I, away, Anthony. We want people to read it. It's out tomorrow. But give us a taste. Give us a tantalizing taste of the yes, well, of, your, see, of your memoir, of your story. Let's see what I can what I can sprinkle in there. So, I think that uh, for me, I was kind of an odd duck in the world of of medicine uh, and in med school and that sort of thing because um, I had other loves than science and math and medicine. Um, I could do all the stuff. I was smart enough to take the tests and learn all this stuff. But at my heart, I really was more of an artist and I always have been. Um, you know, you can ask my parents, uh, you know, what they remember about me when I was a kid. And I was always drawing. I was always telling story. I was, I was always acting. I was singing, I was playing music, all this uh, sort of stuff. And it was this uh, part of me that uh, due to multiple factors, I didn't think that I could go on to pursue. Um, and uh, the world of medicine, uh, you know, was much more, if I could get into it, was much more of a safe bet, uh, something that as far as uh, my family and culture understood would guarantee success uh, those sorts of things. But in the process, uh, I sort of had the things I was passionate about and truly loved kind of beaten out of me by uh, by my journey. And so, you know, as I went through the journey, ultimately, you know, the way the journey broke me down helped me to get or forced me to get more in touch with the things that I truly loved, the things that would keep me alive, keep me going. And those things were very based in uh, my artistic side and my art, my artistic side of the brain. And so, you know, I, I went on to practice for a few years after uh, uh, I got out of training, but knew that, you know, I wanted to make some sort of shift. I wasn't sure how or to what, uh, but uh, I knew I had to make a change. I couldn't just be in the OR, in the clinic every day for the next 20 years. And uh, luckily, you know, I, I got the opportunity to start working in television where I could utilize, you know, both my doctor side of the brain and uh, my writer creator side of the brain. And I'm infinitely grateful for it. Uh, Anthony, do you think there may be a almost a subliminal message in the book for parents? We all, and I, I speak as a parent, we all want our kids obviously to be happy, but we want them to be secure in their career and their life and perhaps in their finances. 
So we all fantasize one way or the other about our daughter or son as a lawyer and particularly a doctor. Do you think that a lot of parents and a lot of cultures put pressure on smart young kids like you to become doctors? I think so. Um, I don't think that's any secret. Um, I can speak to my culture. You know, I, I came from a West Indian family. So my family's from Jamaica and from Trinidad. And, you know, much like, you know, American immigrant families from other cultures, like East Asian cultures, South Asian cultures uh, come to mind. Um, generally, uh, those cultures and those families, if you're the smart kid um, and you have the potential uh, for, you know, greatness, you know, your your family and your culture encourages you to go into maybe one of three professions. It's doctor, lawyer, and sometimes engineer. Um, and because those are occup occupations that are respected, you know, the skill set is always, always going to be in demand by society. They're occupations from which you get pretty solid compensation. Um, and if you can get on the train, if you can get on the track, get into the school and all that sort of stuff, uh, your way forward is sort of prescribed to you. And there's not a lot of uh, bumps in the road that, of course, as a parent, you can see. Um, so it seems secure. And of course, I get that uh, parents, especially if you're parents who have struggled, if you're parents who are immigrants to a new country and you've risked so much, you you really want for your children that they don't have to go through those trials, that they don't have to take the risks that you felt were difficult and dangerous and and nearly brought you to your knees. So of course you want that stability for your kids. But, you know, in doing that and in kind of guiding uh, our kids uh, down these pretty narrow paths of, of assured success, I think that, uh, you know, we're, we're coming up with, you know, generations of sons and daughters that just are missing out on what their true love, their true passions, if you want to say callings, their true callings might be. The early coverage of the book, um, Anthony has uh, picked up uh, from NPR, for example, picked up on uh, the race side of the book. You, you talk in the book and in previous interviews about the implicit racism you saw in the mm. system. Is that fair? I mean, we're obviously, you're living in Durham at the moment, so you're out of America, but it's not surprising to you that this is a country that remains dominated, obsessed one way or the other with race and race issues. Is that a fair caricaturization of I Can't Save You? Is it a book primarily about what it's like to be a, a young male black doctor in the American medical system? I think that's that's one way to look at it. I think that's the most uh, obvious uh, way to look at the story as what it's like to be a young Black uh, male physician going through that system. And I'm not, I'm really not far removed from that system. I just got to England last year, mm. but I, you know, born and raised in the States and gone through all of this stuff. Um, and, for, but, uh, and for people who are just listening, Anthony's talking to us from his room in Durham, but behind him, there is a Flatbush Avenue station <laughs> sign and an I Love 
NY. So clearly your heart is still in part, at least, Anthony, in New York City. Yes, yes. I think it always it always will be. Um, but I think for me, when I was writing the book, as I wrote the book, it became, you know, I, I began it thinking, okay, I'm going to start telling my story about going through medicine um, and, you know, kind of expose, you know, the underbelly of medical education and how dysfunctional it all is. And as I got going, I realized that the story I wanted to tell was about more than just that. Um, it was much more personal and beyond uh, just talking about what it's like to be Black in medicine. Um, I really wanted to talk about, you know, the issues of mental health that we all, uh, to some degree, um, go through at, at different points in our lives. Uh, these are issues that I think for physicians are are rarely spoken about. It's really just in the last couple of years with the pandemic that people have started to take an interest in what's always been there in that, you know, doctors, you know, mental health wise have been struggling for ages and add on to that, uh, the mental health struggles that black people in America deal with, the mental health struggles that black men in America uh, deal with and the difficulty with, talking about those issues, the difficulty finding the vocabulary um, to, to understand uh, and attack those issues, um, I found to be a greater uh, impetus for me to dig deeper in and kind of uh, complete this book. So for me, it's a coming of age story. We're really focusing on the importance of, of my own mental health in the hopes that it would be a mirror to others who have gone through similar struggles in silence. You speak of uh, mental health, uh, Anthony, you're, you're not a, a mental health, you weren't a mental health expert, but you obviously had a front line on that as well. Mm -hmm. We've done many shows, both about medicine, culture, the internet, about our age of anxiety. How would you, as both, uh, a trained doctor, someone who's worked in hospitals and someone who's also spent a lot of time writing uh, about uh, medicine for popular shows like The Resident and Grey's Anatomy. How would you explain this descent into anxiety uh, and, and seeming the ubiquity of, of mental illness? Is this something that was simply covered up before and so we're acknowledging a truth or is it something new? Hmm. Well, the way I've always seen, uh, you know, anxiety and depression, because a lot of uh, what I talk about in my book is is, is around depression as well as anxiety. Um, it's taught in a certain way in, in medicine because it has to be, um, you know, it's very textbook. Here are the symptoms. Here's what we do. Here are how the medications work. Um, in pop culture, we kind of have that very surface view of depression, anxiety, you know, um, uh, that, you know, which makes it very difficult to portray on television. I found in my time working uh, in medical shows, you know, in trying to bring uh, depression storylines into the mix, it was really difficult to explain to, uh, you know, uh, folks who hadn't gone through it and were in charge of these shows, how depression could look any different from just a sad person uh, being mopey, you know, all the time. And 
there's so much more to the experience. And, you know, I, I think I've spent a lifetime kind of in a chronic state of depression. And there are a lot of layers to it. Um, there's a lot of ways that you view the world uh, that shift in, in very confusing and, and kind of troubling uh, ways. There are ways that you view yourself over time that, you know, uh, the issues of anxiety, the issues of depression, when they're present for so long, um, ultimately, the person going through it can't see that, that that's what they've uh, fallen into. Um, it happens so insidiously um, and you mask it in different ways. Your brain fights against it by encouraging you to engage in certain, you know, behaviors that are not the best for your health, not the best uh, uh, behaviors for your stability. Um, but depression and anxiety have a way of just becoming a part of who you are. Um, and that's why they're so difficult to diagnose and so difficult to to see, um, both from the inside and from the outside. So when you have a nation full of doctors who whose culture kind of demands that they be above, you know, these these feelings of of you know. Uh, not liking themselves, these feelings of guilt, these feelings of depression, these feelings of suicidality. Um, and you also have this built-in reason why you might feel these feelings in the difficult situations you see every day. Um, it becomes really difficult for us to diagnose ourselves. Um, and then we suffer. And a lot of the time we suffer and then it's too late. Because, you know, you look at the numbers, our profession is the profession, one of the top professions in the world uh, for dying by suicide. Um, and it's tragic, but it is, it, it's a situation that we've kind of built uh, with the, uh, the medical system and the medical education system as we know it right now. I mentioned earlier your new career as, as a writer. Um, you were a story editor on the show, the, the Fox show, The Resident. You've also done some work with Grey's Anatomy. What is it about America? Maybe it's an unfair question, uh, Anthony, because uh, most cultures love medical shows. But what is it about America that makes it so obsessed with watching these fictionalized medical shows like The Resident? Mm -hmm. and uh and Grey's Anatomy it seems to me I'm not a big television fan I don't have time because I'm always doing this show but mm -hmm. it seems to me that in America either all the television shows are about medicine and all the ads are certainly about medical conditions of one kind or another is there mm -hmm. something troubling about that does it reflect uh, a broader sickness perhaps with the culture that Americans are spending all their time watching these medical dramas? <laughs> um, I don't know if it's a sickness per se. Like you said, I think, you know, medical dramas uh, are popular worldwide, but it's something that intrigued me uh, when I first uh, started to dip my toe into, into the world of, of television. Why are there always, no matter what era, what decade, there are always three types of shows that are on TV, the medical drama, the legal drama, and the police drama. 
at any point. And these are the shows that tend to stay on forever. And they tend and, to, and you know, often they get mixed up. Usually, oh yeah, there's <laughs> they, a legal and a criminal and, aspect uh-huh. to the medical and vice versa. Oh yeah. So uh, those are the types of shows that are always going to be around, always be made. And why? What's what is what is the obsession? And I was thinking about this the other day, actually. And I think that uh, on the one hand, these shows are what we call in TV, we call them procedural shows. They're shows in which every episode follows a very specific structure um, as far as the types of stories and the types of characters and all that sort of stuff. So week to week, that structure, like, you know, on Grey's Anatomy, someone's going to come in with something life-saving and they're going to struggle to figure out exactly what it is. And then they're going to go to surgery and the the alarms are going to blare and they might lose them on the table, but then they save them and then they go home and all the characters learn something about themselves. Like that's, that's the structure of the procedural. And the structure I think is what's comforting to people, to viewers. Um, It's, they're not, I was talking to someone like, why do people go home after a long day at work and watch a show where people are dying and there's blood everywhere. Like, why would they do that to themselves when they're trying to relax? And it's not about the medicine on medical shows, actually. It's just you have a set uh, procedure to every episode and that routine almost in watching the episodes is what's comforting to folks. And they love watching characters go through it. Shows like medical shows um, have built in life or death stakes to every character interaction. So you got these characters, you want to make them fall in love. You want to put a wedge in their relationship. The best way to do that is add a life and death situation that brings together or pushes apart these characters um, because, you know, it doesn't get any more intense than that. Um, And so people just get really invested in, the emotions of these characters because of the drama and trauma that they're going through uh, every uh, every week. So I don't think it's a sickness. I think it's um, I think it's comforting. It's like it's like you know your favorite junk food or a pacifier or not very good for you. Then I mean yeah. I'm not sure for you saying as a doctor your favorite junk food. Uh, the resident has. <laughs> Uh, it's got lots of good coverage uh, tackling, uh, according to CNN, uh, tackling real-world medical issues, probably because guys like you are writing for it. Um, and then he even asked whether one of the hospitals in, in The Resident is a real place. As a writer for shows like The Resident and Grey's Anatomy, was it your goal to really reflect what life as a doctor, life in the hospital for patients and doctors was really like? Um, My goal, and I think, you know, this is, there's a reason why folks in medicine, like doctors usually don't like to watch uh, these sorts of shows. It's because, you know, you'll watch it and say, well, that's not accurate. That's not exactly how we do things and that sort of thing. And when you're on the other side, the goal is not to be 100% accurate to the stitch. You know what I mean? Um, the goal is to educate um, in a way that's reasonably accurate and just not 
irresponsible. You're never going to get every single step of every uh, piece of medicine, um, you know, hundred percent correct is because life isn't a television show and we got to make a television show and it's got to move at a certain pace. Um, things have to happen at certain times. Um, but we do our very best to be accurate in, in the medicine that we, that we um, portray and be timely in the types of medicines, uh, types of medical issues that we portray because you got millions of eyeballs on this show every single week. And so for me, that's a responsibility to those eyeballs that even though they're being entertained, um, they can also be educated. And, you know, as a former educator myself, I was a lot, somewhere along my journey, I was a high school teacher as well. You know, that's always been really important to me. And so if we can educate folks on their own healthcare, on the things that they need to pay attention to in their world, in the, uh, you know, vocabulary that they need to use uh, to advocate for themselves in their own uh, healthcare experience, then I think that's a win. So that's, I think that was my, my primary goal and the primary goal of everyone I was working with. What about the broader socioeconomic or political um, responsibility? We did a show with Stephen Thrasher on what he calls the viral underclass, the human toll when inequality and disease collide. Uh, it seems to me, and we've done many shows on this in, in addition to Thrasher, that hospitals are the platforms or the stages for the most inequality in terms of access to good medical care and, and cost in American life. Do you think as a, either as a doctor, or you were both a doctor and a writer about the medical industry for these fictional shows, does one mm -hmm. have a, a kind of responsibility to address this? You must see it every day. Uh, as a doctor, it must be very disturbing. To s well, I guess in terms of uh, Thrasher's viral underclass, you don't see that class. You only see the wealthy. Hmm. Well, I would say that most doctors um, are not just seeing the wealthy, um, especially when you're in training. Um, you can make decisions about how you want to spend your time afterwards, but... Um, we're not just seeing the wealthy. What we're seeing are we're on the front lines of the um, consequences of the inequality in the medical system. Uh, we're seeing the consequences in the types of patients that come into the hospital and what types of diseases they tend to have. Uh, there are lots of illnesses that tend uh, to have, we tend to see in the highest frequency in uh you know, the poor, the underserved, the minority communities for no reason other than that those communities are underserved by uh, this system that's controlled by, I mean, it's just, I was talking to someone earlier today, it's just uh, medicine is unfortunately in America, um, it's just the epitome of, you know, what our capitalist society can do to us. Um as someone asked me today, are, is our medical system going to collapse? And I don't think it's going to collapse. Capitalism in America doesn't collapse. It's just going to make us sicker and the system won't care because they're still making money. I mean, when you have big money in charge of uh, health insurance and big money in charge of 
pharmaceuticals. So they're in charge of your access to healthcare <coughs> in a timely fashion. They're in charge of the medications you can get. Um, and, you know, as long as there's money to be made, they're going to be fleecing those who um, are struggling through their lives. And so that inequality in care, um, in health uh, outcomes, I think it's, I mean, maybe this is super pessimistic, but I mean, I think it's a, it's a, it's a classically American problem. This may be a slightly unfair question, uh, Anthony, but I always ask unfair questions. Uh, we did a show a few weeks ago on Jackie Robinson uh, with Michael Long about his political cultural significance. Of course, Jackie Robinson was the first black man to break into professional baseball or at least uh, the, the dominant professional baseball league in America. He experienced a great deal of unpleasantness, of racism, threats of violence. Now, I'm not suggesting you're Jackie Robinson, obviously, and there are many other black male doctors in the system. But do you sometimes think you should have given it more of a go, that in a way you had a responsibility, even if it made you slightly miserable and it wasn't the most fun thing to do? Uh, Jackie Robinson and his generation of uh, African-Americans uh, established a foothold in the in, in, in the professional system. Uh, do you think, and, and I'm not suggesting you shouldn't have left the medical system, but for young African-American men who have experienced one kind of racism or another, whether it's in law or medicine or the police, do you think in a way they have a particular responsibility to stick around, even if it makes them a bit miserable? I think... that ultimately we have a responsibility to ourselves. Um, it's only if we're listening to ourselves, we're, we're true to who we are, that we can go on to inspire and influence and make these changes that are really grand. Um, when I think about my path and my decision to leave medicine, um, I know I'm still a doctor. You know, I didn't leave that part of my life. I'm not running from that part of my life. Um, I didn't leave because it got a little too hard. Uh, I stayed through all the hard stuff um, and, you know, have the scars to prove it. But ultimately, my question to myself was how can I, using the things that I know as an individual I love and I'm good at, how can I best make my impact? Is it through staying the course and just being a visible doctor who is, you know, doing the, uh, has gone, continued on the traditional route, or is it by carving out my own route and letting people see that you have the freedom to carve out your own route? Um, and perhaps giving folks inspiration in that way. Um, I think that that's why I say, you know, your responsibility is to yourself first and foremost, so that you can go on to look out for other people in a way that's true to you in a way that you can do with some longevity. Let's end, try and end on a more positive note. Uh, we did a show a couple of weeks ago with a New York University academic Meredith Broussard on the possibility of new technology, particularly AI confronting the 
racial and gendered and abilities inequalities in American life. We've also done a number of shows about how tech can make medicine better. Uh, very briefly, I mean, this is a big question, Anthony, of course, but just very briefly, what, in your experience of the medical industry, both as a writer and as a doctor, what can make it a better system, especially for younger versions of Anthony Chin Quees who, who, so that they won't drop out of the system and will remain doctors and remain happily in the, in the profession? Well, I think that uh, I, can't, I can't speak to the entire system, but I can speak to um, retaining uh, the doctors who will add diversity to the, the profession. Um, because we, we put a lot of focus on uh, starting pipelines for, for women, for, for people of color to get into the medical profession, to become doctors, to, be go, to go to medical school, all that stuff. Uh, but we need uh, more systems and more focus uh, on how we retain those folks, how we adjust and change the culture within medicine so that these folks who are still outsiders, they don't, we, we don't, we don't run the world of medicine. Like white men run the world of medicine. Like that's, that's how it is. But, um, you know, they've got to take themselves to task as far as, you know, how do we give up some of the power that we have so that people that are knocking on our door and trying to be a part of this world can have more power. Um, and so make it a more hospitable home uh, for those who are, who are, who are trying to uh, make this, this profession more inclusive. And so I, I mean, I could talk for ages on that, but I think the issue is, uh, you know, having the humility and the bravery to um, have the folks who are in power give it up so that others can thrive.